Hello, this is Matt with the Church History Podcast, and with great sadness and sorrow, I want to apologize for dropping this podcast two days late. We try to get these podcasts out on the fourth Sunday of every month, uh, so the next podcast will, um, with all hope and prayer, will drop on um, the fourth Sunday of the month of September. Now, I want to uh, thank some of you for your prayers. Some of you know uh, that I and my family, uh, we are moving from the great state of Michigan, south of the Michigan border to the great state of Indiana. We're in the midst of that move, and by the time we uh, talk again through the podcast, we will have landed and have moved. So a lot going on for with my family and I, so you can pray for us. What I want to do uh, today um, is I want to start what will be a two-part series that deals with the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk about um, a little bit of what it is today, and then uh, next month we will talk about what's in it. And there's a reason why I am breaking it down that way. And the reason is I believe that many times when we're reading Scripture— or having conversations with people, or looking at uh, any kind of information, many times we make judgments about what is being said without having an understanding of what something is. Just a very current example of this is the dialogues that we're having back and forth about race and socioeconomic um, situations, uh, policies, um, politics in general. You know, one of the things that can be difficult is, as individuals, we can begin just talking at one each, one another, um, arguing with one another without understanding exactly where the message is coming from as far as a person who's talking to us. For example, if someone says that I am starving, um, we can respond to that, but, you know, unless we understand who's saying that, it could be someone that's saying that who is um, very, very wealthy, and they're saying, I'm starving, and that could be true. They they could be true in the sense that um, they haven't eaten in a couple days for whatever reason, but that's coming from a place where we need to understand where that's coming from, understand what that is, and then understand um, or take note of what is being said. Well, specifically, and I could have used many examples of what I just talked about, but specifically I would like to look at the Sermon on the Mount in this, um, through this lens, because I think it can be a case study for many of the things we read in the Bible, many of the things we read, even many of the ways that we view people. You know, people can say things, we can hear their message without actually understanding who they are, and uh, if we don't understand who people are, we can't truly understand what they're saying, why they're saying it, or even why they would be passionate about something. So as far as this month, I just want to bring this, uh, this basic truth into light, that we must know what something is before trying to understand what it is saying. So we must know what something is before trying to understand what it is saying. And then next month in September, we will we'll look at this general truth. We must not stop at understanding what something is, but steady what it says. So we have to look at things, whether it be a piece of writing, people, some type of art, even parts of nature and uh, um, scientific truths, and we have to understand that we have to know what it is before we're listening for what it is saying. But I, I believe the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start. And the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it is a collection of sayings and teachings of Jesus Christ. And it seems as though they emphasize his moral teaching and it's important for us to understand that these are five discourses in the book of Matthew and take place relatively early in Jesus' ministry. So he begins to lay out this moral teaching very early on in his ministry after he's been baptized by John the Baptist. And after he's finished fasting and having this meditation retreat in the desert where he, uh, I don't want to say does battle with 
Satan because that it, it wasn't really ever an equal battle, but where he encounters temptation and pushes temptation back through um, through his word, which is the word of God. And after that, he began to preach in Galilee, and this is where the the Sermon on the Mount comes from, where it's birthed out of these events. Now, we don't know exactly what mountain this is, um, and there's basically two interpretations of what is happening. There's, there's a couple more, but it's basically two interpretations about what's actually happening at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. It could be that Jesus is, because it said, what it says is that Jesus had large crowds that were following him, and then he took he he went off to the side, and then he began teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He takes his disciples, goes to the side, and begins teaching. Um, some have said that this is kind of he put the disciples front row seat, and he, he began to teach. But there's also this other theory that Jesus took his disciples outside of the crowd, and just this this sermon is more of a conversation between him and his disciples, and less of a sermon as we would see it as some kind of speech or being on a stage where many many people are watching him. Now the sermon, this sermon is the longest continuous discourse of Jesus found in the New Testament and has been one of the most widely quoted elements of the Gospels. It includes some of the best-known teachings of Jesus, such as the Beatitudes, which is in chapter 5 right away, and also the Lord's Prayer, which many people know the Lord's Prayer and they may not even know where that comes from. And the Sermon on the Mount is generally considered to contain basically the central tenets of Christian discipleship. So someone look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and say that if you understand this and you follow this and you live like this, this is what it looks like to be a disciple. Now, the Sermon on the Mount deals with many, many different things. We're going to look at this uh, more um, next week. But I mean, he teaches about the, 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 what, what's called the Beatitudes, or the first portion of, the, of chapter 5. He begins to lay out these kind of differences between chapter, or verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So you have this kind of back and forth of um, what we would think as, you know, uh, for example, the humble, the the meek will inherit the earth, and we would think that the driven, the intense, the whatever word you want to put in there will inherit the earth because they will take over. Um, Jesus begins to put that back and f- back on its head and says, "Is insane." The kingdom of God is very different. Jesus will talk about in in the Sermon on the Mount. He'll talk about what it means to stand out as one of his followers. He, te- he teaches about the law, so he talks, he talks about the Old Testament, so we can understand how Jesus views the Old Testament. He teaches about lust and anger, divorce, um, what it means to, to, to continue to do what you say you're going to do. He talks about how we deal with enemies, and he then talks about taking care of those in need, and then kind of ends talking about how we interact with him. He lays out a prayer, um, and then he talks about fasting and and what that means. And in our society, that means all kinds of different things, everything from um, kind of purging ourselves from toxins to, you know, some kind of a, a, a weight loss situation. He lays out specifically what Christian fasting is. Um, and then I think it's interesting, at the very end of chapter 6, Jesus talks about money and and it's very applicable. And then right after talking about money, he talks about worry. And I always thought it was interesting that those two elements of the sermon are tied together because, you know, uh, money is one of those things that probably causes the most worry with the most people. So um, the sermon is is a is going to be a document that as we look over, document a a, his teaching that we'll look over next month that we will see insights um, that we 
um, I think we'll be able to to live by insights that we will be able to um, notice within ourselves and and we will be inspired we will be convicted and yes over the course of only one podcast it'll be hard to get to the entire Sermon on the Mount so what I'm going to do is pick out a general outline and we'll work through that and I'll pick specific things that we get into deeper and then I'll challenge you and give you some resources to continue on that journey. But today we are looking at what is it? So not what it says, but what is it? So what we're going to do is we're going to first look at the sermon in history. So what is this what does this sermon look like in history? How have people um, throughout history how how did they view this sermon? And it's very interesting to see that the sermon is viewed as what people see it as very differently um, through through the eyes of different people, some as followers of Christ, some as not followers of Christ. Um, Then after that, I just want to work through basically 10 historical types of interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount, because that will help us know, even in our current day, that some of how we view morality— the law, how we, you know, how we are to follow after God, um, is based on the views that our the the leaders in our traditions viewed the Sermon on the Mount. So Lutherans and Baptists and Pentecostals, and um, they generally have, even though it may not seem like this, but at the core, there's a different view of some of the things that Jesus is talking about on the Sermon on the Mount, which then pushes out some of the 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 key understandings of what's important in the gospel in general and the things that need to be followed and the things that are non-negotiable for those groups. And then just give you a basic summary of a couple of views that I think um, may stretch you a little bit, and, and then we'll, we will wrap up. So let's look at the Sermon on the Mount in history itself. And as I mentioned before, the three chapters, this Matthew 5, 6, and 7, have been basically over time the most popular um, chapters, specifically in the New Testament, but many times in the New Old Testament, definitely out of the teachings of Jesus. Um, In the the church fathers in the first three centuries of the church, uh, Matthew chapter 5 is quoted in their writings more than any other um, passage in Scripture over and over again. So that shows the importance of um, the church of the church fathers um, in the first three centuries after after Jesus ascends into heaven. Tertullian, um, he is he's a, a a historical figure, a church father. Um, he he relied on Matthew five seventeen as a key text in refuting um, Marcion, who rejected the authority of of the Old Testament. So I had mentioned that um, Jesus talks about the Old Testament and. Martian was who was also a, a theologian of sorts that lived at the same time as Tertullian. And Martian believed that the Old Testament was ir- ir- irrelevant. He also believed that maybe it was not true or false, at the very least, that there's no point in, in focusing on that whatsoever. Well, Tertullian um, used as a defense against against that 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 um, that thought process to say that Jesus quotes in the Sermon on the Mount, the Old Testament, talks about the Old Testament, talks about the law, which is directly connected to the Old Testament. And he says, look, we can't throw out the Old Testament because Jesus didn't throw out the Old Testament. Now, like I said, in the first three centuries, um, the church fathers and the churches were focused on the New Testament, uh, the letters of Paul, the uh, the, the sayings of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, but Tertullian laid down a foundation to say we, we have to look at the Bible as a whole. Now, Constantine, uh, Constantine the first, um, in the date uh, 337, after the Christian takeover of the Roman Empire, called the Sermon on the Mount Christ's invitation to practice virtue. So, in Rome, um, there had been uh, laws that had set up, there were traditions that were set up, but at the time where Constantine um, made uh, made Christianity the major religion, well, the only religion in the Roman Empire, he directly connected what was right or how people should live or how sh- people should be to the Sermon on the Mount as a moral standard of where people um, 
how people should carry themselves, not just as Christians, but as Romans. And, and we'll see this over time, that um, there are those outside of the Christian uh, faith, outside of understanding just the theology of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and they will take out even some of the basic well, this 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 sound. This is a moral thing. This is right, and they'll take the sayings out, and they will apply that to their societies, to families, to relationships, even if it's not directly tied to their desire to understand the cross. Now, Augustine, one of the great uh, uh, many of what we believe now is rooted in Saint Augustine, and just uh, he is the author of the Confessions, uh, along with many other. Uh, great foundational writings from those those very early dates again like some of the things that he laid down as far as this is how to understand scripture we maybe even unknowing in almost all denominations in the united states um, including the catholic of faith as well uh, um, we we build on how he viewed uh, scripture and how he felt like scripture should be dissected and Augustine began his study of the Sermon on the Mount by describing it as a perfect standard of Christian life. And I think this is important, again, because, you know, when we look at Scripture, one of the things that can become very uh, confusing at times, I think, is we can look at Scripture and we may see large kind of overarching theological themes. You know, there was... There was God created the earth, and then God at some point um, uh, breathed into um, into the human nostrils. So you have um, human beings that are self-aware, and not only self-aware, but they have an awareness of right and wrong. Um, they do wrong. They need a Savior. God wants a relationship with them. God sends his son, who is both God and man, to a virgin Mary. Um, Jesus lives a perfect life, dies the death that human beings should have died, conquering sin and death, um, and then ascending to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, and then um, will return to bring his church to him in, in a very intimate, powerful way. Um, you know, those are just kind of overarching themes. But within that, there it can be questions about, well, as far as what we do, what is right and what is wrong, what's acceptable and not acceptable. Um, you know, what's, and, and this is where some of the arguments of legalism come in. You know, if you accidentally swear, is that a, is that a condemnation forever? Um, well, what about, you know, having an abortion? What about homosexuality? What about, um, you know, all of these things that the church has debated, and some of you may say, some of those, a couple of those things you just mentioned, obviously they're wrong. Well, we need to make sure that before we jump on the bandwagon of any type of law, any type of uh, this is right, this is wrong, we need to look to Scripture first, understanding that those overarching themes are the most important, but specifically pass passages like uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we will see a basis for um, how we should live. Um, and this is extremely important because um, this can throw people off big time. You know, Bible says, I was told at one point I was struggling with what's right and what's wrong. Um, I actually uh, uh, had a person one time, I love smoking cigars, and I had a person one time say that they were praying for me um, that I would be delivered of the evils of uh, smoking cigars. And, you know, these types of things, I think people can get wrapped up into their their own kind of crusade of what they believe is right and wrong. And sometimes I think I, I think people will label something as wrong that they're not familiar with or that scares them or is different than how they believe. I think with sexuality and some of the gender issues, some of those things, they're, they're scary. So instead of kind of digging into what's going on and kind of digging into what the Bible says, there's just this this knee-jerk reaction that that's that's wrong that's wrong so in the midst of these battles that go back and forth and these debates that I think are silly many times I, I think it's important to look at a passage like Sermon on the Mount because we do have a very specific way that we should think about things we should live and and in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus is not just talking about you do this or you don't do this he's actually addressing how we should think about things, which is 
more important than than what we do. Now, I think it's interesting. The Russian Tolstoy, who was an influential figure in the Russian Revolution that would lead to communism, and Tolstoy, um, one of the things he wanted to do as far as changing the status quo of um, the Russian hierarchy and overthrowing the czars and, and the autocratic rule is he believed that the Russian Orthodox Church also needed to be overthrown because it was so entangled with the monarchy. And Tolstoy saw the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus almost like a re religion and a rebellion against the way things were. So Jesus' religion, and this is the way it should be, this is the simplistic way that we should see the church, but also he notes Jesus' rebellion against the status quo, against the current leaders, the leaders of the Jewish, the Jewish leaders of the church at that time, or it wasn't called the church, but the Jewish religion, the people, um, and to some degree the, the religion of the Romans. Uh, Jesus pushed back against that with his teaching, and Tolstoy wrapped himself around that and said, kind of used it as a, as, as a means, as, as a weapon to some degree. Along with uh, Tolstoy, as, as a historical figure that wouldn't necessarily be considered in the Christian strain of who we would, um, who we would uh, study and those types of things, um, the Sermon on the Mount had a great impact on Gandhi. And he said um, it had an impact on him second only to the Bhagavad Gita. And he utilized the principles of the Sermon on the Mount to challenge the authority of the British Empire in India. So he looked to the British and he said, based on these teachings um, and, and following what it means to follow the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, the oppression that is coming from you, meaning the, Brit the British, on the Indian people is not morally correct. So he used the Sermon on the Mount to actually or actually um, um, put forth an argument against what was being done um, to the people of India, knowing also that England was a was a country that had a had a rich, deep tradition that followed the church. So Gandhi was doing two things. He was using something that he believed was a great moral book, and also he was um, he was using it to to help them understand that what they believe and what they understand as to be Christian, the British, I mean, they're not even using that, so there's hypocrisy that's taking place. Now, I mean, there's countless others I've considered the Sermon on the Mount as the benchmark of Christianity, either by embracing it or rejecting it. So it's been interesting that sometimes people will see the Sermon on the Mount as the linchpin of of the of the of the Bible in general because it's the teaching of Jesus and they will embrace it because of the Sermon on the Mount and there are others that will push it away and, and they will reject it because of the Sermon on the Mount. But after looking at uh, some of the historical views of the Sermon on the Mount, what I want to do is I want to look at 10 types of interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think this is extremely interesting because, like I said, um, it's important to look at something and understand, identify, or at least make your mind up on what something is before you begin to read and take in what it says. Um, it's important to know what something is before you take in what 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 is said so the flip side of that is as we see interpretations of the sermon on the mount it will help us understand why people view some of the things in the Sermon on the Mount like they do. Um, if they have this interpretation, if people say this is what the Sermon on the Mount is, it's going to lead them to a perspective of what it says and why that is or if it is important. And others may have a different interpretation, and th that may lead them to say some of this is not important, and this is why. So I want to look at 10 of these quickly um, so you can understand um, some of the ideas of what people, how people have looked at at, a, at the Sermon on the Mount, and I would say this that um, this is not exhaustive. I'm, I'm sure there's more than ten. Ten's just a round number, and I know these are important. Um, some of these, uh, some of these interpretations, I picked up through a lecture from Dr. Jonathan Pennington at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I just kind of added some things to it. I want to give him credit for uh, 
um, some of the language and uh, um, some of the importance of these, making these uh, accessible. So the first one I want to look at is the interim ethic. The interim ethic. Um, this interpretation provides a radical way for the disciples of Christ to live their lives given the end is coming soon. So they live this in a way with the intensity that the end is coming soon. So every law, everything that's said, whether it talks about anger, divorce, worry, um, the Beatitudes of be meek, be all that type of stuff, the view of this is this is the roadmap of what needs to be done knowing that Jesus is coming soon. So that may seem very similar to some of the other views that we'll read, but that would give a different intensity to some of the things that are in that sermon, if that's what is always on your mind. And this, in this interim ethic, it's important to understand that people, this, this interpretation sees um, the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount as impossible for people to live up to, but they need to strive to. Um, so, and we will also see that in a couple of the interpretations as well, that the Sermon on the Mount was never meant to be something that we um, follow word for word, but we know and we do our best. And some of the things we just, it's impossible to do, but we, we, we do our best. Or there's, again, there's just kind of a general arc of you know, love or confidence or those types of things, and the details are not that important. Well, the interim ethic interpretation would say that, that there is arcing kind of things that we, we, we can see and we can learn, but we need to understand that we should dig into it knowing that Jesus is coming soon. Number two would be called, number the second interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount would be called the entirely future view, entirely future view made popular by Johannes Weiss. And what this view says is that Jesus is teaching us or showing us what the kingdom will look like in the future, specifically, particularly when he comes back to take his church with him. So the scripture teaches that Jesus sent it into heaven, and at some point he will come back, and then he will set up a, a new kingdom, so this view would say that the Sermon on the Mount is a snapshot of what that kingdom will look like. And what's important to understand is that it is a snapshot of the future. It has no bearing on the present. So looking through what is being said in the Sermon on the Mount is not necessarily for us now because, again, like like the interpretation we just looked at, it's not possible to do these things that Jesus is saying, but at some point it will be possible. And that's what the entirely future view says. Existential interpretation would be number three. And this would state that the sermon is designed to challenge us to be what we and society can and should be. So it is a challenge for us to be what we can be. Again, it is a an, an interpretation that downplays the details of what's in the sermon and says more so it gives us something to look towards, kind of a shining city when it, that we can look towards, we can try to be. But this view also extends past the individual and the challenge to the individual to live with the ethics that are laid out in the Sermon on the Mount and says we can do this also as a society. Um, and this, this kind of goes back to almost the way Gandhi viewed the Sermon on the Mount. As you remember, one of the things Gandhi did was he said he, he went to the British and he, he, um, he as, a, as part of his argument against their treatment of the people of India, them using the people of India and the colonization of India, he used the Sermon on the Mount to say, as a society, you should not be doing this based on um, the Sermon on the Mount. So that would be a really good example of what's happening there. Number four is the monastic view or interpretation of Scripture. Now, this is interesting. The monastic view basically says that there's two types of Christians, okay? There's Christians who are called to a deep moral 
holiness kind of uh, um, a charge, and there's kind of regular Christians that are not called to that, to that, but they're still Christians. So this monastic view says that some are called to live out the Sermon on the Mount to the letter, while others can live out more generally the ethics of um, the Sermon on the Mount. Number five is the Anabaptist view. The Anabaptist view would be one of the more um, literal um, followings of what is said in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the sermon is a calling to all Christians to be lived out in all parts of life. And also the Anabaptists uh, really take from the Sermon on the Mount the, um, this kind of understanding that passivism um, is something that is is championed in the Sermon on the Mount, and and it sees passivism also is, is as something that's understood to to also be part of the call of discipleship. Um, so passivism being not taking up arms arms against each other, but not just that. Um, they would connect passivism to um, to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus continually comes back and says. Um, you know, y- your interaction with people should not be aggressive, should not be violent. We should be people of love. We should be people that step back, turn the other cheek, those types of things. Um, but again, the Anabaptist view would look at the Sermon on the Mount and, and to the letter say this is to be taken seriously. And holiness looks like this. So when Jesus talks about divorce, it's not a general um idea of how he or how he feels or how he as God feels about divorce we look at the exact line of what is written in the Sermon on the Mount and that is how we deal with divorce this is very literal and uh, if you grew up in this context this is this is, seems like well this of course everything in the Sermon on the Mount is literal but there's almost more of the, a thought process on thinkers and theologians that would say, to take the Sermon on the Mount exactly literal may not be the best way to do that. But these are views I'm bringing to you and, and uh, views, uh, interpretations. So, um, and I don't plan this this week to to talk about exactly where my view is on this, but I will next week. Um, so number six is the doctrine of two kingdoms. So basically there's a spiritual versus a civil or a public realm. So the sermon is private and not public. It's a very interesting interpretation of the doctrine of two kingdoms. It basically says that someone can do something in society that they can't do privately. So you have basically what happens in your heart behind closed doors, and uh, the piety must happen when you are alone. But when you are in society, that is a, a different—you uh, can have a different persona— and we see that within um, different movements out throughout, first of all, a Nazi Germany would be a movement like that, where there's many uh, Germans that felt very, you know, that they were very uh, um, studious with Scripture. They had a, a history with Scripture. They believed it, but they also had a belief in what their country needed and the type of leader that their country needed. So they were pulled, they were pulled into the Nazi party while still going behind the scenes and, and acting out the, the tenets of the Sermon on the Mount. Another example of this would be um, Christians in the South during the Civil War, leading up to the Civil War, sometimes after the Civil War, that were um, white Christians that allowed themselves to be in, in a time where slavery just took place, and they allowed for that to happen, even though some of them may have truly thought it was wrong, they saw it as crucial to their economy, but they were able to go back to their churches and privately live out the tenets of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that seems very, I think the word would be uh, hypocritical when you think of that view, um, but that is a view. It's a view that there's two kingdoms. There's the spiritual, personal, and then there is the civil. Now, uh, number seven is the dispensationalist view, and this is a hard distinction between the cross and grace. Kingdom of heaven um, was the offer of the millennial kingdom to the Jews because the Jews rejected it, and the offers made to the non-Jew 
Therefore, the Sermon on the Mount was only for Jews. All right, so I, that might just seem like gibberish of what I just said. Basically, the dispensationalist view is, is this, just in plain language, that the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus was first and foremost, um, came down to the Jews, and how Paul says that he, he came for the Jews, and the Jews um, rejected him, but he was preaching during the time of being there with the Jews as he was being rejected. Before he died on the cross, then his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, was therefore... Um, just for the Jews. Now, I, I I said I wouldn't get too involved with saying much about these, but I, I would say even more than some that would seem hypocritical, um, I think this the dispensationalist view of the Sermon on the Mount is extremely difficult to uh, um, to make a case for, because if you say that you know Jesus in teaching the Sermon on the Mount is irrelevant because um, it's just for the Jews because he hadn't died and rose again yet, and the Jews were in the midst of rejecting him, um, then what, you know, h- how much of the Gospels do we throw out? You know, there's, it's almost like um, we, find, we would find ourselves with very, very few pieces of Scripture where we could say in the Gospels um, before the book of Acts and saying this applies, which I think then you start cracking away, chipping away at the foundation of the Gospel, and I think that is a very dangerous place to go. Um, number eight, there's the Lutheran reading, and that is, the impossible high demands of the sermon are there to make us aware of our sin. Now, this has kind of been a theme through a couple of these interpretations that, you know, we the Sermon on the Mount does not call us to follow the law to the letter of what is being said, but instead it gives us either a view of what society could be, a view of what we could be, an overarching kind of understanding of what Jesus is trying to do, um, well, the Lutheran reading is probably the, the most clear clear statement of what those things I was mentioning, and it's just this. The sermon's demands are too high for human beings. We can't do it, so it's, it's, it's an understanding of, of why we need a Savior. It's much, like, um, it's much like the book of Leviticus, portions of the Old Testament, where Paul looks back and says, the law is there to be a mirror almost for us to look into and to see that we cannot follow the law, so that's why we need mercy and grace. Now, I, I, I think to look at, the, um, look at the Sermon on the Mount and make that kind of just intense kind of statement, I think you, you, could, you could find yourself getting into trouble because there are some very um, important things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that are obtainable things to do, um, are things that we should be challenged to do. And I think we we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where we don't follow what Jesus says because and we say we don't do that because it's either for later or it's for the future or it's unattainable when in actuality it it's just going to take a little work on our part. And we don't want to explain away why we won't put in the effort to follow after what Jesus is saying and to be um, obedient to his to his words. Number nine is the modern liberal reading. And this is basically just that the Sermon on the Mount is, um, it is kind of the gospel, but the gospel is kind of, the gospel itself is kind of taken out of it. So there's, the gospel is just kind of um, a vision of a great person or society. So again, it's there's there's not a gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. It is these ideals that we can hold on to, and it helps us look to the future. Um, and number ten is the fulfillment complexity, fulfillment com- complexity interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, and this would say the centrality of Matthew five. Um, 17 specifically in that verse Jesus fulfills the law by his teaching therefore fulfilling shows the law its true meaning the appeal is to the heart so this would be a a um, so this the fulfillment complexity reading basically would say that um, it's it's kind of like the opposite of the Sermon on the Mount is the big society, big tent, big, you know, just it's just thematic. It's not to the to the letter. 
Um, and also, this is not an interpretation that would say that these are rules or things that we should follow because they are just there and we should be obedient. This interpretation says that it goes even to more of a micro level where this sermon is something that reaches us in our heart. So the sermon actually moves us to, um, in a very complex way, to begin to follow what Jesus is saying, both out of obedience and out of just an understanding of what he's saying. And, and the sermon itself, if we are followers of Christ, as we read this sermon, we begin to have literally an emotional response to what is taking taking place. And that emotional kind of feeling, what happens inside of us, then gives credence to um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 being, um, being not only the law, but having true meaning. So unless we engage with it spiritually, um, we don't really understand or can't understand what it is all about. Now, I, you know, to close up, I, I just want to basically say that uh, one of the things that is important is to allow yourself to think about these different interpretations, but not allow yourself to become fixated on them. All right. So basically, the challenge for any thinker who is wanting to really dig into Christianity and the Bible, the challenge is that you are um, you are critical in the sense that you want all the facts, what people have said about it. Um, you want to know the different interpretations, but the challenge also is that you are able to step back and, and allow for your personal um, faith to be. Um, invigorated by the passage you're looking at. So when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, we don't want to just be critical. We don't want to just figure out what other people are saying. There's an element where we want to open up the Bible, get a cup of coffee or whatever, um, and open up the book of the Bible, uh, the book of Matthew and the book of the Bible, and, and start looking at these chapters and just saying, um, I'm just going to read them. I'm going to just read what they're about and, and see for myself. Um, so that's a challenge, both personal um, and academic or critical. Personal, academic, but critical. Because there are uh, views. Um, here's just, just these are three ways that kind of um, I have looked at the Bible before, and I know people have looked at the Bible before. And these are things where um, we need to be careful not to judge others who view the Bible through these lenses because they may be working out things that are going on. Um, like, for example, a hyperbole view, um, and, and this is kind of the idea when you look at the uh, um, Sermon on the Mount, that the commands need to be toned down before applying. So this would be the view of, or this would be kind of, you know, and these are different than the 10, okay, or start just a couple, just three, three thoughts here. And, and the hyperbole is just to say, you know, I, I, I don't think, I, I, I feel like what's in here needs to be toned down a bit. I think instead of saying toned down, it needs to be sculpted a little bit um, to kind of, kind of fit what's going on the rest of, of Scripture. There's been times where I have felt that about different passages of Scripture where I've looked at it and I, I have said, you know, I, I think it's okay to tone down aspects of how this has been, this passage has been viewed biblically, um, and in order, and, and that either can a lead to a truth of hopefully throwing you back into a non-toned down view of what's happening in this passage, or you you begin to sit and you 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 kind of again find the themes of what's taking place. There's also like a general principles way of looking at scripture, and uh, and, and I've, I've viewed scripture like this before. That's why I'm throwing these out. Uh, Jesus intended to teach general principles through specific illustrations. Um, again, this is, um, th this is a view that it's not necessarily something. When I've done this before, when I've had viewed scripture like this before, it's not as though I... I look at Scripture and say, well, this is fake, this is fake, this is fake, this is fake. Um, instead, what I do is I try to find general principles that are happening in, in the Bible. Like, for example, with the gospel, um, you know, the gospel, as I walked through earlier, um, Jesus dying on the cross. Um, I, I'm not 
you know, the Bible's talking about, you know, Jesus being whipped, the, the crown of thorns, this, that, and the other thing. But for me, I start to look at that and just the way I think, and it's kind of, again, this general principle kind of view, I begin to see just the fallenness that of sin that where I find myself, grace and mercy that is provided uh, by Jesus and the atonement, meaning the fact that he took on my sin and and uh, and now it, because of my uh, belief in Him and my trust in Him, when G- when God see- God the Father sees me, He doesn't see my 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 sin. He sees instead, you know, the blood of Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross, the atonement. That's what the Bible says. Um, so that's a general principle. Now, does that mean that um, it's in- does that mean that I I you know the crown of thorns and the whip and all that didn't happen? No, that's not what that means. Um, that just means that there are larger themes at play that we don't want to get lost in the weeds, so to speak. Um, for example, uh, I saw I, I feel like the Passion of the Christ was a little bit like this, where there was so much violence happening and so much of Jesus' body being ripped apart that I think some of the theology of what was actually taking place um, what the gospel actually meant might have been might have been um, lost in some of the gruesome details of what was happening within the story. Um, in another way that that the Sermon on the Mount and other pieces of the Bible, other parts of the Bible can be looked at is just as attitudes, not facts. You know, so Jesus' concern was not for facts, but rather the spirit relying uh, the spirit lying behind the facts. Um, so Jesus' concern was not for facts, but rather with the spirit lying behind the facts. And all three of those, so the hyperbole view, um, things need to be toned down a little bit so we understand what's going on. Um, the general principles view that uh, Jesus intended there to be kind of general, kind of big principles that took place. Um, and he did that through specific illustrations. So even his specific uh, illustrations, his stories, pointed not to smaller things that were taking place, not that they were small, but uh, small that they were not as big as some of the huge themes of Scripture. And then attitudes, not acts. Jesus' concern was not for, um, not for acts, but rather for the Spirit lying behind the acts. Um, and those are, those, are, those are ways to kind of look at um, what it means to see, see the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in another passage in Scripture. Now, I think I always get nervous when I get into talking about this stuff because people are so easy—they jump on things so quickly. And it's important to know that, you know, when I bring up things, when I talk about things in this podcast, um, they are not always, um, again, just a representation of, of where I have landed— um, and I think that people that are listening to this, to this podcast, well, I know people listening to this podcast are all over the board on some of these things. But I think, again, it's important to understand, like we said at the very beginning, it's important to know what something is before trying to understand what it's saying. And then, and then we must not stop understanding what something is, but steady what it says. And I think it's important. There's no, there's absolutely no reason why you can't kind of sit through and sift through and make decisions and kind of see what's out there because I believe it will um, make your faith strong. Um, I had a, uh, when I was working with youth, I had a parent that told me they were just petrified of their child going off to, uh, um, to a college. I was pastoring in Ohio in the Dayton area, and their, their son was going off to um, Ohio State University. And um, they, the parent had heard all the horror stories about um, going to a philosophy class and everybody and all the kids will lose their faith and, and uh, are going to, you know, a biology class, and now no one believes in, in God, you know, creating the earth and all this kind of stuff. And even then, I was obviously younger than I am now, but even then, I, my response to that was, you know what, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair to, one, um, keep people or, or attempt to keep people, even your kids, to attempt to keep your kids from 
other points of view. And also, I think it is an overjudgment to say to your children that I'm worried you're going to lose your faith. Um, because I, I think losing your faith is, it's, it's almost insulting to some degree when people say that, because you becoming interested in what other people have to say, you taking a minute to sit down and, and consider, is this really what I believe? That's not a loss of faith. That is a just a consideration of the facts of what's going on. And if someone walks away based on an argument that they hear and they, <clears throat> they walk away from um, you know, their belief in the Bible or whatever, I believe that God is sovereign, good, and strong enough to bring them back. Because I, I don't know if everyone believes this, but I would say, you know, all truth is, is God's truth, you know. So truth will lead us to God. Um, I, I've had people argue with me about the Big Bang and this, that, and the other thing. And, and again, the theme, the theme that I believe, and I'll tell people, is that there was nothing and then there was something. And that doesn't make sense. So in my view, there was a creator and he created all that there is. Then there's questions about, well, did he kind of get it started and then kind of evolution kind of took its pace? Uh, did, did he kind of, you know, did he, has he been involved in what's going on? Um, you know, how, uh, you know, these questions, but I think where you have to start is not those small details, not that it may seem like they're not small, but, um, you know, these, those types of details need to only come after you understand or accept the theme that there is a God that created. And then you start working backwards to if there's a God that created, and then as human beings, we're different than the rest of creation, you know, maybe there's a connection between us and God, but there can't be because God is holy and perfect and we're not holy and perfect. So how's that connection going to happen? And then all of a sudden you're into um, some of the problems and some of the things that need to be worked out in um, and that are worked out in the gospel. So with that said, uh, I kind of a heady, kind of a heady uh, podcast this week, but I hope you found it interesting. Um, like I said, I want to give, uh, give credit to Dr. Jonathan T. Pennington for um, a couple of his books that I'll put on the uh, um, show notes and also a couple of his, a couple of his lectures. Um, next uh, time we get together, I will be going through some really important parts of Sermon on the Mount um, and also using, again, a couple key historical figures to show you, um, to, to kind of pull out the insights they have. It's so great to uh, uh, be able to talk to you guys and share what's on my heart. And, and I know these things are just, sometimes I just, I, I'm just sharing kind of what I've been thinking about too. And um, these are things that are, are big deals to me. Um, so I hope your, um, the rest of your August is, is well. Look forward to September. Look forward to seeing you and talking to you. I guess not seeing you, but maybe some of you I'll see you, but uh, talking to you. And I just pray that God gives you joy and hope and until we talk again.